The LARB Radio Hour is a free weekly podcast of the Los Angeles Review of Books, a reader-supported nonprofit publication. To support our continued work on this show, in print and online, please consider donating or joining as a member today at lareviewofbooks.org backslash radio hour. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. On this week's show, we're talking with Colin Dickey about his latest book, Under the Eye of Power, How Fear of Secret Societies Shapes American Democracy, which, like the name suggests, explores how our national anxieties over shadow groups like the Illuminati and the Freemasons emerge and recede in an ongoing cycle around moments of peak political and social turmoil in American history. So, you know, Dea, I thought this was really fascinating as a book to think about in the present, and I'm sure this is not lost on our listeners, but it seems like right now we have what felt to me before reading this book as a peak moment of increasingly unhinged conspiracy theories in mass media. A lot of it driven by the right, you know, this is stuff like QAnon, you know, that believes that we're harvesting adreno cabal of wealthy elites, which always obviously has this kind of echo of anti-Semitic blood libel, you know, is kind of harvesting this essence from tormented children in order to give themselves eternal life. But, you know, what Colin kind of points out in this book is that this is always happening in American history. Like what we experience right now is like, oh, my God, this is wacky and crazy and it's never been like this before, has in fact happened many, many, many times, which, you know, I guess in some ways was comforting, but maybe also super disturbing. Yeah, I mean, I do find that comforting because I I think so much that we hear on the news is usually preceded by the word unprecedented Mm -hmm. Um, and which has already become almost a parody of itself and I think it is interesting and often can be good to hear about the precedents to the things Mm. that we are experiencing because of course of course there are precedents it is interesting to read about all the different conspiracies that have gone into essentially the making of this entire nation Mm -hmm. I'm always curious about you know, what leaves people susceptible to that, why it's so alluring and enduring. And, and I think Colin does a good job of explaining all of that as well, you know, Mm -hmm. the ways in which unrest and change and political upheaval really leaves people searching for a much easier answer, which is that it's under control. It's just under the control of somebody that you can't trust. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And no matter how, what lunatic story you tell about, quote unquote, those people you can't trust, it's easier to believe that than it's like, oh, we're just in a moment of random chaos. Which is, of course, much scarier than than anything other than, you know, than uh, a cabal of Hollywood actors trapping kids in the the (laughs) basement of a pizza shop. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'm always curious about, like, if people are also, you know, when somebody who seems relatively reasonable goes down the path of conspiracy theories. So mm-hmm. so that also fascinates me. Have you ever been tempted by any conspiracy theories, Eric? 
no, I think in in some sense, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by them, but never like actually, I, I guess the word I would, I'm never won over by them, right? I'm more like you, I'm interested in like, how does someone come to believe that? Like, how does a, a seemingly reasonable person come to believe something that just any thread you pull, as kind of Colin points out in our conversation, any thread you pull reveals that this is a sham, right? That it's like, this right. is ludicrous and whatever. And yet you still cling to that belief. Like I find that really psychologically fascinating, but then there's other moments like right now, for example, it appears that we have legit people in government uh, or former government officials saying that aliens do in fact exist and might like walk among us which is kind of like on the face of it i'm like uh you know anytime i've talked to scientists and others for different projects about this kind of stuff they're like look if aliens exist like we better hope that they're you know and they can come here we better hope that they're peaceful because their technology is already so far ahead of ours that like we stand no chance you know mm. so that's why i'm relatively certain that if they were here we would know um uh-huh. but yeah. you know it is always one of those things where i'm like maybe it is true but then i mm. quickly dismiss that Ah, so aliens is your conspiracy of choice. It might be. Not a conspiracy, a possibility, I guess. A possibility yeah. of choice. I don't think there's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a government conspiracy around aliens, but uh-huh. I'm like, maybe maybe they do exist. Okay. Um, but anyways, well, should we dive into this conversation? Let's do it. We are thrilled to have Colin Dickey with us on the line today. Colin is a writer, scholar, and associate professor of creative writing at National University, whose interests center on the United States' unusual cultural objects and hidden histories. Colin is a regular contributor to publications including The New Republic, Laugh-Ums Quarterly, and our very own LA Review of Books. He's also the co-editor of the Morbid Anatomy Anthology and author of Ghostland, An American History in Haunted Places, and The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. Colin joins us today to discuss his latest book, Under the Eye of Power, How Fear of Secret Society Shapes American Democracy in which he charts the history of America through its fear of those secret societies, like the Illuminati and the Freemasons, as well as the enduring cultures of conspiracy theories that spring up around these shadowy membership clubs. Colin posits that our national belief in the fantastical and conspiratorial is the salve we reach for in view of the chaos and randomness of actual history, as well as the rising and falling fortunes of Americans and the messiness of our democracy. Only by seeing the cyclical nature of our national obsession with secret societies and conspiracies, such as the many that listeners might recognize right now, can we break its grip on our society, politics, and culture. A version of the chapter The Suburban Uncanny about the satanic panic of the 1980s from Under the Eye of Power in fact appeared first in the LA Review of Books. So with that, we would love to very warmly welcome Colin to the show. Colin, it is a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me on. So, Colin, can we start? I mean, as is true when people read the whole book, you realize that it is always the time of conspiracy. So there's never a better or worse time to write about conspiracies. But kind of what brought you to this particular project? Like what made you get interested in writing about conspiracy theories and their centrality to actually the history of the United States? 
I think I came through it in a kind of roundabout way. My last book was on like cryptids like uh, Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot and aliens and sort of why people believe those things and what's at stake in those kind of mythologies, so to speak. And one of the things that really struck me in working on that that book was the the fact that, you know, you either believe in the Loch Ness Monster or you don't, but nobody thinks the Loch Ness Monster's existence is being covered up by the government. Whereas, by contrast, if you believe in UFOs, you almost, as an article of faith, believe that there's some kind of government cover-up. You know, that UFO belief has become so intertwined with paranoia and conspiracy theory, it's more or less impossible to separate them at some point. And so I think I kind of moved from more fringe beliefs to kind of more mainstream conspiracy theories and sort of how they affected the world, affected history, affected the way we saw the world. And this seemed like the next logical way to do that. I I didn't want to go like too broad with conspiracy theories. I thought it would make sense to focus on just this idea of the secret society, the, the people who are hiding in the background, pulling all the strings and sort of where that belief came from and how it evolved through the last couple hundred years. Before we we jump into the actual meat of the book, I'm interested in this inflection point that you've identified. Why is it that like aliens, for example, belief in aliens, which are just in some ways, I guess, as fantastical in the imagination as the Loch Ness Monster, why does that always come wedded to the idea of a government conspiracy? Is it because aliens represent some systemic threat that like, say, Nessie doesn't necessarily as like an object of curiosity? Well, no, I think just historically, when the first kind of, you know, 20th century flying craft sighting started to happen, it was at the the dawn of the Cold War and people didn't know what was happening, but it at least was plausible that, you know, what people were seeing was some sort of advanced foreign, you know, reconnaissance craft or, you know, weapon system or something like that. And so the investigation of of aerial phenomenon fell to the military and fell to the Air Force once it was created. And so the earliest sort of definitive argument of, no, there are no such thing as flying saucers, aliens are not imminently arriving, comes out of the government. And so if you you know, if you choose to not believe that, if you think that is false, then it comes from that, that, you know, the government is lying to you. And that that belief started to take root pretty early on, and certainly by the 60s had become an article of faith. So maybe we can have or give listeners a little bit of an, an idea about why you locate the roots of American democracy, really just even the very, very beginning of this nation, in a paranoid politics and conspiracy theories at large. Well, right. I mean, I think it goes even like before the American Revolution and um, the Constitution. I mean, you know, Salem is a sort of textbook example of a moral panic that's in some ways the template for what we're still dealing with today. I mean, the idea that Goody Brown or Goody Johnson is in fact not a normal housewife, but is, you know, secretly in league with the devil and that's why your cow got sick is the kind of first iteration or the previous iteration of what would be a modern version of something like QAnon or Pizzagate or something like that. And so I think we've always had the idea of the devil or witches as an explanatory mechanism for calamity and misfortune. You know, why do animals get sick? Why does your child die if not for the presence of witches and the devil? And so as the country has gotten more and more secular, the world that I think it's really easy for people to kind of lapse into that stuff. That certainly is part of it, but also sort of historically, 
What did you find in terms of when you were looking into the kinds of conversations, the kinds of letters that you cite in this book? I think a lot of the evidence points to a lot of conspiratorial thinking from the very, just not even with the Salem witch trials, but with the founding of the country in a lot of conspiratorial thinking, essentially, that somebody was always kind of out to get the democracy that was being forged here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the reasons that is, is first of all, the founders of this country are trying this very new thing, democracy. It's never been tried before in this way. It's immediately sort of seen as both this brilliant, perfect resolution of politics. We finally figured it out. This is going to be great. And also acutely vulnerable from foreign influence that having sort of made this amazing democratic system, it's likely that some foreign power is going to try and ruin things for us. And again, almost immediately after the the American Revolution is over, the French Revolution happens. And that goes from being another sort of attempt at like, you know, this great brand new thing we're calling democracy, but almost immediately devolves into the terror and the massive, bloody, violent revolutions that continue to run through France. And so people start to look at the French Revolution and the sort of initial failure of that second model of democracy and see that as further validation. Oh, you know, this wouldn't have failed on its own. There must be some sort of you know, foreign saboteurs who were who worked to undermine it. And eventually this will, the name given to this will be the Illuminati. But almost immediately people will then start to worry and fret that such saboteurs could come to the United States and wreck our great democracy at any moment. I mean, you've given us an opening. I mean, the early parts of the book that deal with the Freemasons and the Illuminati, I found fascinating in large part because I realized I know these names, which in our cultural parlance are usually treated interchangeably and are not historically interchangeable societies. But I was fascinated by the fact that the Freemasons basically starts as like a guild collective, right? That has to be secretive because they're trying to, this is in Italy during the Renaissance era, the stone workers are uniquely valuable because, you know, nobles want their work to create these enormous like stone villas. And these Freemasons kind of band together to help set prices. But then this changes so that it then, in order to kind of fund that secret guild, they bring in men who are like more noblemen or aristocrats that then bring money, but also bring a bunch of, as you described several times, kind of like silly rituals and stuff like that. And then, of course, there's also the Illuminati, which starts as a kind of a more rationalist, secularist response to the control of the Roman Catholic Church. But then both of these seem to be turned into, Illuminati gets almost 180 degree turned around into being some radical debauched like Catholic sect that's trying to install papist control in the U.S. Can you explain a little bit about how these two groups that we did we kind of know a lot in the U.S., just kind of in pop culture history, the names of. But can you explain how they became so central to kind of our domestic conspiracy theories? Yeah, I mean, in a number of different ways. So the Illuminati, which was a, an actual organization very briefly in Bavaria, Germany, for about 10 years before it was suppressed, disappears after 1780 or something like that. And it's not until the French Revolution when people are trying to explain how things went so wrong that various writers start to posit that perhaps 
this organization had not died out and perhaps they were responsible for bringing about the bloody violence of the French Revolution. And so early on, the Illuminati become a kind of easy default explanation for why things have gone wrong. They are an explanatory mechanism and precisely because they're invisible they're nebulous. Nobody knows exactly who they are, where they are, how they operate, what they want. And of course, there are no answers to any of these questions because they don't exist. But then they can be whatever you want them to be. And you can explain any facet of world events that don't make immediate sense as evidence of the secret plan of the Illuminati that is unfolding and going exactly according to plan. So they early on become this kind of almost quasi-theological explanation for bad things in the world. The Freemasons are very different because the Freemasons, as you mentioned, were a legitimate organization. They started as a stone mason's guild. Eventually, they started adding in members who were not stone workers. But because their meetings were kept in secret and they did a very good job of maintaining secrecy, intellectuals and artists and philosophers started becoming Freemasons because then they could talk about dangerous radical ideas like atheism or women's rights or whatever without fear that the king or whoever was going to find out about it. So they became places where kind of aristocratic and upper middle class men could meet and discuss things. And so when they get to America, you know, fairly early on in the 18th century, they become a really useful way for, you know, men of a certain status to network. And I think one of the things that was really fascinating when I was researching the book was realizing that when the founders were putting together this this country they didn't want they didn't want the idea of an aristocracy that was based on ancestry and nobility and birth but they did want a class system they wanted an elite they wanted an upper class and so the freemasons became a way in which a certain kind of class of men could visibly and sort of demonstrate their wealth and status without it having to be something that they had inherited. So someone like George Washington, who was a kind of inveterate social climber, could work his way up to being a man of status. And one of the ways he did it was through joining the Freemasons. Or like Benjamin Franklin, who really saw himself as kind of a first among equals, and not even in a pejorative way, but, you know, as a guy who was, you know, sort of trying to figure out what it meant to be a good civic citizen, you know, founding libraries, founding volunteer fire departments, that kind of thing. Like, So the Freemasons were a way for men like that to kind of demonstrate their status in their class, even if they hadn't been born into it. Let's just talk in general terms about, for lack of a better phrase, the kind of anatomy of a conspiracy theory. What helps them to be sticky? What are the kind of elements that you need in order for a conspiracy theory, let's say, to really take off, to get some kind of stickiness with the general population? So conspiracy theories, I mean, they're, they're a lot and they, different ones work different ways. I think the anatomy is that often, there are a couple of ways they start. Some of them have a nugget of truth, right? You know, I mean, I mean, I think, again, to return to the earlier question about aliens, I think that there's a nugget of truth in the idea of the government is hiding military secrets from us. And that is most evident in the Manhattan Project, you know, and so ever since The military spent 18 months in the middle of the desert making a weapon that no one had ever seen before, kept it under very tight security until it was ready to be unleashed in the world. We have reasonably understood that the government may do weird stuff in the desert. You know, like that is a thing that like has happened in the past. Maybe it will happen again. 
So oftentimes a conspiracy theory will start with a legitimate question. I think that the interesting thing is an actual conspiracy, something that is based in fact, once you start poking around, it will almost immediately unravel. And so I think, you know, I used in the book, I used a couple of like well-known actual conspiracies, Watergate, Iran-Contra, the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal, Big Tobacco, as examples of, you know, this is what an actual conspiracy looks like. And sure enough, when Woodward and Bernstein start asking questions and the New York Times starts asking questions, Nixon's whole plan comes undone fairly quickly. In a conspiracy theory, you don't get that immediate confirmation of evidence. And while some people would then conclude, well, then there's there's no there there. I mean, I, any journalist has gone through the experience of thinking they've stumbled upon a huge story and poking around and finding that there's nothing to report. There's no facts for whatever the allegation is. And so you let it go. What happens in a conspiracy theory is you start making these kind of second and third tier allegations as a means of explaining why there's no evidence to prove your central conspiracy. And so, for example, there's this guy, Bob Lazar, who is a UFO guy who argues that here he said, I don't know if he still believes this, but he said in the past that there was a meeting between the aliens and government scientists in the late 70s. And there was some confusion and miscommunication. And the aliens took out their laser rays and liquidated all of the scientists, just killed them in this meeting, right? So that's sad. That's terrible. But it prompts the question, where are they buried? Where are the obituary notices? Where's the grieving families? You know, like I would think that if you're like, spouse didn't come home from working in the secret alien farm one day, you would want answers, right? So Bob Lazar has a problem with his story because there's a lack of confirming evidence. So instead, he he adds this new layer and, and it says, you know, what the government does is it goes around to orphanages and finds promising orphans who have no families and adopts them and trains them to be scientists so that no one will miss them when they get, you know, lasered up by aliens. So that's the kind of way that a conspiracy theory will start to add additional layers to explain why there's no direct confirmation of the thing itself. And so in the book, I talk a lot about this convent in Boston in 1834 that was... um, It was thought that the priests had basically sort of enslaved all of these young women for various sexually depraved acts, a sort of forerunner of Pizzagate and QAnon. And it was assumed that if these women were being raped, then there would be unwanted pregnancies. And then the question is, well, where, why aren't the women like giving birth? Why aren't there children? And so then you had to add the second tier, which is, well, you know, they're murdering these infants and burying them in the basement. And then and then there's the question of, okay, well, where are their corpses? And then you have to sort of add another layer, which is, well, there's a secret basement below the main basement and the corpses, you know, so you see how a conspiracy theory sort of keeps adding layers to explain fundamental holes and a fundamental lack of evidence. And I think that's kind of how they kind of evolve. And that's what makes them seem so crazy. But this also gets me to the, there seems to be a desire to believe the conspiracy theory that also keeps it afloat. Like there is the person who is promulgating this theory, but even when it gets distributed across networks like QAnon, I think there is like a, so you wouldn't want to admit immediately that it's all hooey, right? Because there's a lot of psychological mechanisms there that it's like the embarrassment. This is why, you know, we say that people don't want to admit when they've been conned because they feel embarrassed. So they'd rather believe that the con was actually true, but maybe didn't work out the way they had planned. And I wonder if it's a similar 
psychological thing with conspiracy theories, which often rely on the examples, like this example of the convent is perfect because it relies on some very lurid but also alluring fantasy of some extreme sexuality, extreme violence, like these kind of things that get our juices going as human beings. And I wonder if there's also just such a desire to believe in this thing, almost as if it has a kind of explanatory power, a magic power, a just like spectacular kind of power, that that's why the ones that are so successful maintain themselves even in the face of evidence that would disprove them or a lack of evidence to prove them. Yeah, right. There's a folklorist named Patricia Turner who writes about urban legends who uses this phrase by the anthropologist Claude Levi-Strauss, where Levi-Strauss is talking about why we have rituals with animals. And he has this phrase, because animals are good to think. And Patricia Turner's line is that, you know, urban legends and conspiracy theories are also good to think, you know, which is to say that they offer us something pleasurable. They offer us either confirmation of a belief that we don't have otherwise evidence for. They offer us a way of justifying perhaps, you know, a bigotry or, you know, something that we know is sort of not acceptable in polite society. But if there's a conspiracy theory, somehow that will sort of make it okay. They offer us a narrative in an uncertain and crazy world. And even if that narrative is malevolent, it can still be something that provides a shape and a kind of order in an otherwise chaotic world. And I think that's a huge thing for why people go towards conspiracy theories, because I think a lot of people have a, a real difficulty with just the idea of chaos and disorder, and they will look for some kind of narrative that provides a structure, even if it's not based in fact. And or, I mean, when I talk to various people who believe versions of QAnon, I think that in a lot of cases, there is a, a genuine and not terrible, if but horribly misplaced, genuine desire to protect children, want to know that children aren't being, you know, abused or whatever. And so I think that there are, with any sort of conspiracy theory that gets legs, it does so because it has a couple of ways for where it can do one or more of these different kind of existentially affirming or pleasurable kind of things for the believer. And it's usually an overlap of a couple of those different things, I think. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Colin Dickey, author of Under the Eye of Power. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. Maya Binyam on the line with us today. Her new novel is called Hangman, and she is here to give us a book recommendation. Maya, what book are you going to recommend? I wanted to recommend The Lonely Londoners by Sam Selvin, which was a book that was originally published in the 50s and is about a burgeoning community of West Indian immigrants who are living in London. And it's a kind of plotless book in some ways, or if a plot emerges, it's only because of the kind of various antics and these various people that he's welcoming and reckoning with who have likewise traveled from the West Indies and are finding a home in London. So yeah, it's without a conventional plot, but nevertheless is animated by these kind of micro stories that populate this small world in London, which is 
growing into an identity and resisting the identity that's beginning to be thrust upon it. And it's a beautiful book and it's also very funny and strange. It is. Yeah. And very short. It is very short. It's very short. Will you tell us the title and the author of the book again? Sure. It's The Lonely Londoners by Sam Selden. Thanks so much. We've been speaking with Maya Binyam. Her debut novel is called Hey Man. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now back to our conversation with Colin Dickey, author of Under the Eye of Power. Your book made me think a lot about, and we'll get to this probably in in more detail later, but about the kind of the uptick in conspiracy theories on the right in the present. And some of it seems, and I don't know if this phrase is terribly descriptive, but it feels like almost a kind of cosplay where it's like you get to, like QAnon, for example, right? You get to feel like there's very clear black and white lines between evildoers who are, what is it, sucking adrenochrome out of, like, you know, tortured children in order to prolong their life, like some kind of cabal of basically vampires, and you are the good person that's trying to expose this. But it also feels like it's getting caught up in, if everyday life is really boring, for example, like you're laid off from your job. Anybody that's been unemployed for any period of time knows just how boring life can actually be when you don't have something to structure your time. I wonder if, to a certain extent, the conspiracy theory also provides a way for the person to become a hero in a kind of story that is very interesting and makes suddenly, like, everyday life not just give an explanation to things, but also just makes everyday life feel like a kind of Lord of the Rings-style battle campaign that you're invested in. Of course, yeah. And I think that describes QAnon really well. I mean, I think that the people who are deeply invested in QAnon, it is it is both a, a war between good and evil where the end times are are rapidly approaching. You know, the QAnon missives are often some sort of indication that, you know, the storm is coming is one of those cliches. You know, there's this idea that we are just on the cusp of a great battle and we, the good guys, are going to win. And yeah, I think that is a a really exciting and affirming belief for people. And it sort of sucks them in. And, you know, with QAnon, there's always this kind of element of puzzling and decoding as well, because the Q drops these posts from Q that appear on, on 4chan and 8chan are always very cryptic. They read like a Nostradamus prophecy. So people are always looking to, you know, find ways to connect the dots. So it offers a whole range of sort of psychologically pleasurable activity rolled up into this narrative of this battle between good and evil. The only real problem is that it's based on nothing. It's a scam and it demonizes and vilifies anybody who's not on the far right. And there are violent repercussions. I want to get into some of those specific conspiracies, conspiracies and conspiracy theories that you talk about in this book. And some of the ones that really, you know, managed to stay the course, (laughs) managed to stick around for a long time. I think you know, probably the easiest one to talk about or to start with, because I think it encapsulates a lot of the issues that we're bringing up also, is um, the Jews. One of the things that, you know, becomes very clear in your book, you talk specifically about this tract called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which becomes popular. And 
one of the things that you really make clear is the kind of at once contradictions, the kind of contradictions that are consistently asserted no matter what's going on, right? That Jews are both communists and capitalists. They are both authoritarians and pro-democracy. And so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the Protocols of Zion, that this book, and the ways in which anti-Semitism has emerged or has been consistently visible in America. Yeah, I mean, you know, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion is one of these books that I think with good reason has been called the most dangerous book of the 20th century. You know, I mean, a, a book that directly drove a lot of the ideology behind the Holocaust and numerous other acts of anti-Semitism. And it is a book that is a, a forgery and a sort of collage of other texts that we don't know the exact origin of it, but all signs, all circumstantial evidence points to it being a product of the Russian secret police in the late 19th century or the very early 20th century. It is a book that even anti-Semites don't actually read because one of the things about it, if you read it, is it, you know, again, it's being produced by Tsarist Russia. And so it is incredibly pro-monarchy. It is very anti-democracy. Like its politics are exclusively focused on the situation of Russia in the first decade of the 20th century. And so, but it sort of doesn't matter because the whole thing about anti-Semitism is nothing matters. All that matters is the central ideological belief that the Jews are behind everything and that they're malevolent in some form or another. So the structure of anti-Semitism, you know, as you were alluding to, is built on the series of paradoxes. Jews are hyper-capitalists who only care about money, and they are also Bolsheviks, socialist anarchists, intent on bringing down capitalism altogether. It is a thing which, you know, anti-Semites, I mean, I think the Jean-Paul Sartre book about anti-Semitism nails it quite well when he says, you know, it's sort of, anti-Semites will treat this sort of hatred as like a joke and also a very serious thing simultaneously. It's sort of nothing and everything. And again, I think that for me, one of the things that I uh, explains its, its really enduring appeal is among this, this group of people, is it because there's nothing specific, there's nothing like empirical you that an anti-Semite would ever say the Jews are trying to do, anything and everything can be a product of a Jewish conspiracy theory for them. And so once again, the whole world can be explained. Anything that doesn't seem like it makes sense, anything that seems unfair, anything that seems out of whack, or it all can be reframed as part of the secret plot of the Elders of Zion because the whole point is that there's no there there. All that matters is you believe in this sort of quasi-mythical ability of a certain segment of the population to, you know, rule the world. And that that is how it sort of allows, that is how it continues to spread because there's, it's very hard to debunk a thing that really makes very little claims on its own because the whole idea is if you were to come along and say, well, you know, actually most European Jews were actually quite poor, very few of them were bankers, you know, you will be told this actually doesn't matter because that's not what we're talking about. The sort of there's a constant moving of the goalposts. There's a constant sort of shifting of the focus because for the anti-Semite, all that really matters is that central core premise and everything else is fungible. I think the interesting flip side to that that really struck me in your book is also the history of the CIA and the FBI. That might seem like a real jump, but I think we're going from something where the goalpost is constantly moving to something that actually is is a real 
group of people who are undercover who are influencing the way that the country both enforces laws and extra legally subjects its citizens to a variety of different experiments, it turns out, and many other things. That really struck me. Could you talk about the CIA and the FBI? It may be a big question, but the history there and how they they actually are real, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, right. So when I put together this book, or when I started to outline what I was going to talk about, I formulated this definition for myself of, I was going to look at secret societies, either real or imagined, which were hypothesized as a, a coordinated group of people of some size who were working behind the scenes invisibly to violate American democracy, break American laws, or overturn the American way of life, however so defined. And so beyond, I think, the most obvious things that I knew that I was going to be writing about, the Freemasons, the Illuminati, and the Jews, almost immediately it occurred to me that the two groups that legitimately fit that bill, which were accurately described by that definition, were the CIA and the FBI, who at various points conspired behind the scenes in secret to violate American laws and violate American civil liberties. And, you know, these were not known at the time. They came out subsequently. They helped create a attitude of fear towards the American government by its own citizens, this belief that once they did this, they will do anything. So what I talk about in the book are primarily MKUltra, the project of the CIA to experiment on humans, particularly Americans, in the 50s and into the 60s to see if there were drugs that could be used as mind control drugs or otherwise could be used to influence people to make them do certain things. And the FBI, who under J. Edgar Hoover, began multiple intelligence collecting projects against American citizens, most notably civil rights groups in the 60s, as well as the student left movements in the 60s, but also surprisingly the Klan, which they also infiltrated. And so these things, which you know come out in 1970 as a result of eight people who break into a FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, and leak what becomes known as the COINTEL profiles to the Washington Post and other organizations is the only reason we really know about this, but it results in a kind of sea change in how Americans view their government. Can you talk a little bit about your personal experience with conspiracy theories? Were you, there's a friend of yours that you meet with at your grandfather, but it's not quite a conspiracy theory, but he's part of the John Birch Society. Were there any moments when you felt almost drawn in or tempted? Because it is, you know, as we pointed out, it is like kind of a relaxing thing to think, right? You suddenly have an explanation for things. You have, you have somewhere to go. You have somewhere, some place to place the blame. Right. I mean, I think growing up in the 80s and in the 90s, I mean, I think like every Gen X kid had a whole series of conspiracy theories that they believed. I remember just like hanging out with my friends in high school and college and just sort of sharing these various stories about corporate malfeasance or what the Marlboro boxes of cigarettes has three hidden Ks on it because it's secretly owned by the KKK. And we would just sort of like, yeah, I don't know. It was pre-Google. It was pre-internet. There was no way to really check this stuff. You know, somebody you trusted told you this and you bought it. And you're like, wow, that's crazy. That's wild. And then you tell somebody else. And so, I mean, sure. I, I'm always interested in the idea that there's something sort of magical and hidden out there that nobody knows about, but is sort of right under our noses. And I think that has informed a lot of my work, you know, not just the book on UFOs and Bigfoot, but also the book before that, Ghostland, which was about, you know, haunted places and, and why we believe in ghost stories. And so 
I've always been sort of interested in this. I think that I just also at some point, I ran some of these to the ground thinking that they would be true, thinking that, you know, I could find the evidence. And I, you know, so many times something that I believed for years to be a cool, true story turned out to be entirely fictitious that eventually I started to shift away from believing these things were true to sort of trying to understand for myself as well as for other people I knew, like, why do we want these to be true? Why do we go searching for these things? And why are we so eager to believe them even in the absence of any kind of evidence? Obviously, and I'm sure this is what our listeners are thinking too, it's kind of hard to ignore the present as we're reading your book. And we're at a moment that feels like, and again, it's because one only has the vantage point of one's own experience. And you show this kind of long durée of conspiracy theories in American culture and history. But it feels like we're at a kind of peak moment of the embrace of particularly wacky conspiracy theories. And that's, you know, largely but not exclusively fueled by and in tandem with the kind of political ambitions and as four indictments suggest, also the crimes of Donald Trump and his supporters. And between kind of Trump and we've talked about QAnon and others, it almost feels like they're competing to be more and more insane than what came before in terms of the kind of logic and text of the conspiracy theories. So I'm curious kind of what you think is driving that in the present and whether or not there's a way to get ourselves out of this situation. Like how does one disabuse conspiracy theorists or that kind of have seeped into a huge part of the electorate of their beliefs. Yeah, so I would actually dispute a little bit the idea that the conspiracy theories we're dealing with now are singularly wacky. Because again, I think that one of the problems, to answer the second part of your question, how do we deal with this? One of the problems is we are accustomed to, to when we're faced with conspiracy theories that seem particularly ludicrous, as soon as the, the fire dies out, as soon as the moral panic kind of subsides, there's a tendency to almost immediately forget that it happened, to sort of this kind of amnesia because it's so crazy, right? So in the early 1980s, you had small children saying that their parents and their daycare workers were involving them in ritual human sacrifice, that these children were, were being placed on hooks alive and then being taken down from hooks without any scarring that the cops could find, that these witches were flying in the air, that people who were known to be deceased, who were dead and buried, were participating in these rituals. All these fantastical claims that were unprovable and beyond the realm of fact from children ages three, four, and five, who were then used as star witnesses to convict these adults of child abuse, many of whom were sentenced to lengthy prison terms, many of whom served, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in prison before they were exonerated from entirely bogus charges that were made by coerced children. This was in many of our lifetimes, you know, I remember growing up. And I also remember that by the 90s, nobody wanted to talk about it. As soon as it kind of passed, it was sort of this weird fever dream. And I think that this happens again and again. And so most conspiracy theories are really bonkers and wacky on a kind of objective level. But what happens is if they feed into a kind of more primal anxiety, right? In the 80s, it was, you know, women entering the workforce and suddenly this idea that if you left your children in daycare, they would be subjected to horrible things, right? And so you know, so that story gets huge traction on daytime TV. Who's watching daytime 
TV, the women who are still stay-at-home mothers, right? So they are like, they're getting that affirmation that I am home with my children and the people who are sending their kids to daycare, those children are at risk. So these things, they tap into sort of a primal anxiety, they latch on, and then it doesn't matter how ludicrous they are. You know, I mean, another one that I, I didn't know before I started researching this book, but I, fascinating was this, this Catholic priest who sort of left the faith in the 19th century, worked, he came from Canada down to Illinois in 1850 as part of a defamation case. He hired this young lawyer, Abraham Lincoln, to help him get cleared of this this defamation case. And as far as anybody knows, that's the last time he interacted with Lincoln. But after the Civil War, this guy publishes a memoir claiming not just that they stayed in touch, but that they were bosom buddies and that he came to the White House repeatedly during Lincoln's tenure. And that Lincoln told him repeatedly that there was a Catholic conspiracy out to get him, that the Jesuits were behind the Civil War, and that if anything happened to him, it would be because the Jesuits had assassinated him. And this book was like a bestseller, went through like 10 editions, you know, like utterly ludicrous. But it, as I read it on the book, it offered a narrative for white people to say the Civil War was not about slavery. It wasn't about Black people. It wasn't about emancipation. It was about the Catholics meddling in American affairs. And the only reason that white Northerners had turned upon white Southerners was because of the pernicious influence of the Pope. It's a ludicrous story. But it it's reassuring. And, you know, as we were saying, it was good to think with. And people lap that up. So part of what I wanted to do with this book is to kind of show that this happens over and over again. So people don't just think of Salem or the Red Scare as the only two times in American history that this has happened. Because I think if we're more accustomed to the fact that this actually happens like clockwork very regularly, we might be able to be in a better position to blunt the next one before it's allowed to get out of hand. Well, I think that is an excellent place to wrap with that like very hopeful goal of being able to avoid the next dramatic conspiracy, though it feels like we are already in the midst of several at once. But thank you so much. We've been speaking with Colin Dickey, whose latest book is Under the Eye of Power. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Blotton.